All right, well, I've got about three sermons to give in 30 minutes, so we're going to get chomping at it, okay? If you open with me to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to cover verses 1 through 10. Let me read the whole passage, and then we'll, um, we'll just pray and get rolling, if that sounds good to you. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you for your word. This is your word. This is not the opinions of men. Lord, this is not a commentary from uh, some human sage. Lord, this is the word of the living God. And so we humble ourselves now under your word. And I pray, Father, that this morning, those who are already in Christ would walk out of here singing, God, your praises, rejoicing in the God of their salvation. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who do not yet know you, that they would pass from death to life today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever been ring shopping? Shopping for rings? Not like I do that a ton, but we were doing that, obviously, when I was going to get engaged to my wife. I was shopping for rings. And you ever notice something about when you're ring shopping, they always set those rings in great lighting, of course, but also always against a black backdrop. Have you noticed that? And even if they're going to show you a ring that's not out and you're asking for something, they come out and they bring out the black backdrop and then they show you the ring, right? You ever wondered why they do that? They do that because the, the, the ring, the diamond, may sparkle and look amazing, but it, it stands out all the more against the contrast of that black backdrop. And so when you set that black backdrop, then all of a sudden, the diamond sparkles all the more and grabs your attention. That's kind of what we got going on here in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter two. There is a diamond of wonderful, glorious news in verses four through 10. But that news is set against the black, bleak backdrop of verses one through three. And so I got bad news for you this morning and good news. And we're gonna start with the bad news. Now, 
I can hear some objections already, right? Like, especially, this is a difficult passage. Praying through, like, why would I teach this passage first time ever speaking in a new place, right? Why would I start with so much bad news? Because we're going into some bad news as we start, right? Why would I do that? Some people go, man, can't we just talk about the love and mercy and grace of God? And I think, yes, that's, that's where we're headed today. That's where we're going, okay? But I've just become convinced that most people don't give a rip about the love, mercy, and grace of God until they understand why they need it so badly. And that's why verses one through three are so important. Because if we don't understand the depths of our sinfulness, then we yawn at grace. We sing amazing grace without truly being amazed by grace. We expect grace and we just assume God's gonna be merciful. So we have to get verses one through three down. And when we get them down, then all of a sudden, what we encounter in verses four through 10 will hopefully take our breath away. Amen? You ready? Let's dive right into the bad news. No one's excited to do this. So that's why no one said, yeah, I'm ready to go. It's all right. (laughs) Our condition apart from Christ can be described in three ways, found all here in verses one through three. We were dead, we were disobedient, we were doomed. Now, I apologize for the cheesy alliteration, okay? I normally don't like that kind of stuff, right? Uh, But that's just how it worked out, okay? Unless you're into that sort of thing, in which case, you're welcome. Uh, (laughs) Dead, disobedient, and doomed. We can describe our experience apart from Christ in those three terms, okay? So look at verse 1. And you were Dead. dead. There it is, right? Just right off the bat. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, dead. Paul repeats this later in verse five when he he says, dead in your trespasses, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Later in the same letter, Ephesians chapter four, verse 18, he talks about being alienated from the life of God, which is another way to say dead, dead. You were dead. So listen, here's what the Bible is saying about our condition apart from Christ. We're not just basically good and just need to add Jesus to our life right? We're not just distant. We're not just far from God and need to come closer, right? I got a buddy pastors a church in Thousand Oaks and their their slogan is, you know, helping people far from God. They're not just far from God. They're not just far from God, right? Not just struggling and need to improve your life. Not just sick and need a doctor. That's not what Ephesians 2 just said, is it? Dead. Void of life. So when we're saved, We don't pass from bad to good. We pass from death to life. That's absolutely vital to understand. Absolutely vital to get. We don't just go from being bad people to good people. In fact, I've met some really bad, bad Christians, right? I've been a bad, bad, right? Like we do some bad stuff, right? We don't just pass from bad to good. We pass from death to life. And that's what Ephesians is driving home. Unbelievers aren't just people who are far from God. They're spiritually dead people who need to be born again. That's why John 3 says we must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God must wake us from death to life. All right? Here's the thing about dead people. They can't do anything to improve their own condition, can they? A dead person can't do a thing to improve their own condition. 
right? So I used to say this when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for like eight, nine years, right? And I would give these invitations. We'd have like hardcore concerts, right, where we'd like clear out the sanctuary and people would like mosh for Jesus. <laughs> it would just be nuts, right? And we'd get like 500 teens and young adults in there and we'd just go crazy. And I'd get up and I'd give a, you know, gospel message and I'd give like an altar call, type, right? And uh, we got people raise their hands and sing. But one of the things that I would always say frequently is I would, I would say, okay, listen, the gospel's like this. Like, man, you're drowning at sea. Like, you're, you're, you're struggling and the waves are beating up and you're going to die, right? And someone throws out the, the, the life preserver, right? It's the gospel, right? And we throw it out. And all you have to do is just reach out and grab the rope and you'll be saved. Just take the gospel and you'll be saved, right? And that's how I thought about salvation, I thought our job is just to throw out the rope, right, of, of the life preserver of the gospel and that people, we had a responsibility. I came to Jesus because I came to Jesus. You see what I'm saying? I saw something, I understood it, and I reached out, and I took the rope, and I trusted in the gospel, and I, right? Now, there's a lot of truth in there and just enough error to make it false, Right? The problem with that analogy is that a corpse can't grab a rope. (laughs) Right? I'm not flailing in the ocean trying to survive. I'm already dead, according to Ephesians 2. I'm at the bottom of the ocean. Lifeless. So, dead. That's number one. Okay, let's go to number two because time is ticking, okay? More good news coming your way. We were dead. We were disobedient. Disobedient. Look at verses two and three, right? Let's start in verse one here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Disobedient. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> so, Paul goes on here to describe how we disobeyed God just like our first parents did, right? So enough with this, like, oh man, if Adam and Eve had, no, 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 Romans 5 says, you too, you too, you prove that God was wise and doing it the way that he did it every time you sin, Right? You wouldn't have made any different choice. Instead of following the Lord, though, what this passage says is that we follow three evil influences, right? The world, the devil, and the flesh. That's all right here. The world, the devil, and the flesh. I'm going to just go through this quick just for time's sake because I want to honor our time here. But So A, we followed the world, right? Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. What's the point there? Unsafe people are... are just adopt, just blow with every wind of what culture's doing, right? They just adopt the attitudes and habits and lifestyles of the dominant culture, right? So let's draw this home. If you find yourself mimicking the culture in lockstep with the ways of the world, thinking the way that unbelievers think, saying what they say, doing what they do, if there is no discernible difference between you and an unbelieving world, that should grab your attention. That should grab your attention. I, I heard a pastor say this. I'm not sure who otherwise I'd give credit to now, but it's the, the saying stuck in my head where he said, how can, this is why the world struggles to believe our message because we have 
auditoriums across this nation and around the world filled with people who claim to have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of them and they look and act no different than the rest of the world. So we follow the world. Unbelievers just, that's what we do as unbelievers. Apart from Christ, we just go where the world goes, say what the world says. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be the ones that are challenged for having some message that's contrary to what everyone else is affirming and doing all that. I don't want to, I don't want to be the one. I just follow the world, right? Second thing, we follow the devil. So, so again, it's not popular preaching nowadays, but verse two, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians speaks more about principalities and powers than almost any other New Testament letter. And it draws attention to the power behind them, and that is Satan. Ephesians 4, give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God so you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We have an enemy we have an enemy, and he hates us with every fiber of his being. Spiritual attack, spiritual warfare, if you want to use that term. People get weird with some of that stuff, but it's a real thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. And people can take that into weird, wacky places, right? I think we make two primary mistakes when it comes to Satan. One, we're either overly fixated on him, <laughs> Right? so that everything in the world has a demon, right? So like somebody steals your parking spot in the mall parking lot and you're like, that's because the demon of whatever who comes to steal your stuff can't, no, it's just that guy was a jerk and he stole your parking spot, right? It's okay. So we're either overly fixated on spiritual warfare and demonic attack and all that, or we ignore it. We ignore it, pretend it's not a reality. This is a spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Reminds me of when Jesus called the Pharisees sons of the devil. In John 8, he said, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Sons of disobedience doing the desires of their father, Satan. They want to do what Satan does. Now, this should be in stark contrast to the children of God who should ultimately at least long to do the will of God. Of course, we're going to wrestle. We should ultimately long to do the will of God. This is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it is satanic demonic principalities and forces that empower disobedience and rebellion against God. Every time we rebel, we're acting like Satan. Every time we rebel against God's commands, we're acting like Satan. So we followed the world, we followed the flesh in our disobedience. I'm sorry, the world, the devil, and see, we followed the flesh. That is our own sinful desires. Look at verse three again. Among whom we all once walked, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it talks about passions of the flesh, talks about desires of the body and the mind. These things are associated in Galatians 5 and elsewhere with things like anger and sexual immorality and idolatry and sorcery and jealousy, strife, dissension, drunkenness, on and on and on and on, right? They come from within us. That's what it just said. 
They come from within us. They come from our flesh. So you say to me, man, don't get on me about that. That's just natural. That's just human nature. That's just the way that I am. That's just how I'm wired. That's just what I naturally gravitate towards. And I go, yeah, that's your problem. I'm not arguing that that's natural. It is natural to you and I, apart from Christ, to rebel against the living God. That's what Ephesians 2 just said. So it's not actually an argument to say, well, that's just the way that I am. It's just natural to me. That's actually a biblical argument saying, yeah, and that's exactly why the wrath of God is being poured out. Our sinful behavior is explained by all three of these influences, the world, the devil, and the flesh. They all play a part in the sinful condition of man. And so ultimately, here's the picture. We're totally depraved and totally unable to save ourselves from that state. Isn't that good news? No, it's not. Totally depraved and totally unable to save ourselves from that state. We're dead, disobedient. Three, we were doomed. Doomed. Verse three, and we're by nature, it's natural, by nature, Children of what? Wrath. wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. So the disobedient in verse 2 are now destined for wrath in verse 3. This is what we rightly deserved. So apart from Christ, our spiritual condition could not be more tragic or hopeless. I hope you see that in verses 1 through 3. That apart from Christ, our spiritual condition could not be any more tragic or hopeless. This is the worst news I've ever heard. And we were justly under the judgment of God. He is right to condemn us in our sin. It's because he's good and because he's holy, he has to judge sin. He's not just going to sweep it under the rug and so that all who reject him are doomed ultimately to experience the wrath of God. And, and this is not going to be an unrighteous outburst of anger or an act of revenge on his part. He's not like he's unrighteous for doing this. It's a just and righteous punishment of sin and wickedness from a perfectly holy God. So the hard truth of verses 1 through 3 is that apart from Christ, we are dead in sin, dead in sin disobedient by nature and ultimately doomed to experience the wrath of God. Totally corrupted, thoroughly corrupted and completely unable to save ourselves from that state. And just as that horrifying and nauseating diagnosis is sweeping over us and we are left staring at that black backdrop of our condition, Paul shows us the diamond of the gospel. And it begins in verse four with two of the sweetest words I've ever heard. But God. But God. Praise the Lord, it doesn't end at verse three. Amen? Praise the Lord, the story doesn't end at verse three. Dead, disobedient, doomed for wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The good news, the good news hopefully stands out 
all the more against that black backdrop, right? That diamond should sparkle a little bit more right now, right? It's like if I said, if I had two 15-year-old patients in the hospital who were just diagnosed with stage four, sorry, one was diagnosed with stage four cancer, first one's a healthy 15-year-old, and I have discovered just now that we have the cure for cancer, and I run into room number one, and I tell that healthy 15-year-old, hey, we just discovered the cure for cancer. I think that 15-year-old is happy. I think that 15-year-old is very, very happy. But then when I go into room number two, and I tell that 15-year-old that has been diagnosed with stage four cancer that we have just found the cure, I think that 15-year-old falls on his face and says, thank you, God, I live That's why verses one through three is so important. Because I think we have churches filled with people in room one. They're happy about the good news. Because that's good news for those people that need it. What I want us to see is that we're all in room number two. And not even just sick, but terminal. Remember, dead, already dead, right? So the good news should be that much more good to us. And it begins with this, God is good. God is good. What is the good news? It starts by understanding that God is good. Can you imagine how horrific it would be if God was omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, and not good? Can you imagine how horrible it would be if God was great, but cruel and malevolent and vindictive. That would be the worst news. Praise God, he's good. Praise God, he's good. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy. What does rich in mercy mean? That means you don't just have enough to pay the bill. He's not eking by on his mercy for you. He's got more than enough mercy for whatever you need. Do you understand? You're not so great a sinner. Don't flatter yourself. You're not so great a sinner that the blood of Jesus Christ can't cover that. He's rich in mercy. Rich, lavish, abundant, more than you need. More mercy than you need. He's rich in mercy. And I look at this. I love how intentionally redundant Paul is because of the great love with which he loved us. Like how many more times can I fit love in that sentence? Right? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God isn't just loving. He is love. He is love. So we're talking about now the mercy and love of God. Verse 7 It says, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It just said, God is immeasurably rich in grace. So he was rich in mercy. He's just stretching for words. He says, he's immeasurably rich in grace. Like how much grace does he have? It's impossible to measure. Impossible to measure the amount of grace that God has toward you who are in Christ Jesus. Impossible to measure. Immeasurably rich in grace and kindness. And so right on the heels of the most tragic news that I've ever heard in verses one through three, we're told, but God is good. 
but God is good. So the good news begins by understanding the good character of God. That he's merciful, loving, gracious, and kind. And so in his goodness, what has God done about our hopeless condition? Verse five, he made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses when, so there's a difference. So verse one talks about trespasses and sins, right? Sin means to miss the mark, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for it and I miss, it speaks of man as a failure, okay? Trespass is a different thing. It's a little different. Trespass is I see the fence, I saw the sign, and I hopped the fence anyways. Speaks of man as a rebel. Apart from Christ, we are both sinners and rebels, it says, even when we were dead in our sin and rebellion, what does it say? Verse five, he made us alive together with Christ. When you were dead, he made you alive. He made you alive. Remember, a dead person can't do anything to improve their own condition. This is when God's great work of salvation began in us. When we were dead and disobedient, doomed to experience his wrath, completely depraved, totally incapable of saving ourselves, he made us alive. What grace, what grace. Romans 5.8 says it this way. Christ demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us when we were failures and rebels dead in sin. I think about God saving me and how I wasn't even looking for him. I wasn't on some spiritual quest. My mom had invited me to church, literally, literally called me every week for six months and invited me to church and I started to cuss her out because I was so tired of the phone calls. And in a matter of 24 hours, God grabbed a hold of me and he's never let go. I wasn't looking for him. I thought I was good. Made us alive together with Christ so that in Christ we are born again. That's what John 3 talks about, being born of the Spirit. We pass from death to life. And so some people talk about the outward call, right? We share the gospel and, and the outward call goes out to all men, right? And then others talk about the inward call of God. That is the thing we can't do, right? I can preach the gospel to you. But I can't do what the Holy Spirit can do and speak to your dead soul and command it to live. So sometimes as we're giving the outward call of the gospel, the inward call happens and the Holy Spirit says something to you and quickens you and brings you to life and that is the work of the living God. And so the pressure is not on me to convince you to become a Christian. For those in here that may not be in Christ. But I do pray that you will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the word of God this morning. 
Christianity then is not about behavior modification as if Jesus just came to make moralists. There's a lot of really good behaving atheists in the world. It's not about behavior modification or simply becoming a nicer person. It's about waking from the dead. It's about waking from the dead and coming to life spiritually. You were dead and now you are alive. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with him to new life. What kind of new life? Scripture calls it, we're just, for time's sake, I'm going to abbreviate. It's an abundant life and it's an eternal life. That's the new life to, to which you have been raised to if you are in Christ. From death to abundant, eternal life in the presence of God, your creator. So the Christian doesn't need to fear death. I, I, I like to say this a lot where I go, threatening the Christian with death is like threatening my kids with Disneyland. Right? <laughs> Paul's reading this week. Paul's like, I'm hard pressed between the two. Like, I have a desire to depart and be with the Lord, which is far better It's like, nevertheless, I'll stay here because I think it's going to be beneficial for you. Like, I think God will probably leave me here for a little while. <laughs> we don't have to fear these things. Death in Christ, death has been defeated. You take your last breath here and you're first in the very presence of the living God. Have you read Revelation 21? No more sickness or sorrow. No more pain, no more tears for the former things have passed away and behold, all things have been made new. In Christ, abundant, eternal life. And this is all the work of God's grace. Verses five through eight, by grace you've been saved. Raise us up, be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might continue to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. You didn't do anything to merit that. It's just a gift of God. Paul mentions grace at least 12 times in his letter to the Ephesians. He reaches for words. You feel him reaching for words in verse 7 when he says, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and belief system in the world. Everything else is some measure of you earn it. You reach it. You attain it. You figure it out. You do enough things. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You attain enlightenment. You do something. Christianity is what God, your creator, did to rescue you from death. Sheerly an act of his grace. Not a result of works, so no one can boast. Our best efforts can never earn our salvation. We're only saved by grace. We're not saved by good works. Now, that doesn't mean that good works aren't important. Because didn't we just read in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So don't hear me preaching, stop doing good works, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your good works don't earn your salvation. 
Good works are not at the root of your salvation. Good works don't produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. Do you see the difference? The difference is between a true or a false gospel. Because if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you're living a false gospel. But if God, by his Holy Spirit, has come to live inside of you and regenerated you and brought you from death to life, you will desire to please God and you will do good works to the glory of God. You see the difference? It's huge. So grace forgives us apart from any works that we've done and then empowers us to do good works to the glory of God. I gotta finish this. I love how he says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In the coming, not even in the coming age, in the coming ages, a million years from now, God's still gonna be showing you the immeasurable riches of his grace. 10 million years from now, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Tony, Marita, pastor and professor says this, for all eternity, we will be recipients of his grace, trophies of his grace, eternal demonstrations of his grace. And so what a turnaround. Instead of eternal wrath and separation from God in verse three, we now have eternal abundant life and everlasting grace in Christ Jesus. And this is all in Christ Jesus. Verse five, made alive with Christ. Verse six, raised us up with him. Verse six, seated us with him in Christ Jesus. The resurrection life that we're talking about here is for those who are in Christ. This is not a blanket promise for everyone everywhere. It's for those who are in Christ. It can only be found in him. Remember, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, dead, disobedient, doomed, in Christ, abundant, eternal life. And so the only proper question to ask right now is this simple one. Are you in Christ? I didn't ask, do you attend church? Do you read a Bible? Do you give when the plate comes around? Do you lift your hands and sing songs to your own version of Jesus? I didn't ask any of that. I said, are you in Christ? Has the Holy Spirit of God raised you from death to life so that now your desire is to do the will of God and be with him forever? It's been said that Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. It's a place for those who love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? If so, the Holy Spirit has done that in you. The Holy Spirit has done that in you. Are you in Christ? If yes, then rejoice. I pray that you walk out of here absolutely free with the song in your heart to the God of your salvation who brought you from death to life. I pray that nothing can kill your joy over that. And if the answer for you this morning is no, I I don't know that I'm in Christ, then my prayer this morning is that today would be your day of salvation. That as the word of God has gone forth this morning, the Holy Spirit would have been doing something inside of you and quickening you and raising you from death 
to life. It's a work that I can't do. But I pray that that would be your experience this morning. If you walked in here apart from Christ, I pray that you walk out of here alive in Christ. You were created by God to to bring glory to God. And you, like the rest of mankind, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and your sin has separated you from the God that created you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, lived a sinless life, and he died on a cross to pay for the sins of everyone who will repent and trust in him. So my prayer for you this morning is that if you haven't done it yet, that you will repent, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus for salvation. What a dramatic reversal, huh? Let me land, because I've gone long, and I apologize. Well, I got almost a minute. Maybe cheesy, but I want to close with a poem, if that's all right with you. I can get a little artsy-fartsy from time to time. It's a poem called, What is Salvation? Based on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What is salvation? Perhaps it's like a man at sea who's battered by the waves. He sinks and rises, sure to drown the ocean for a grave. Then suddenly a ship arrives. Salvation is assured if he will only grab the rope and trust the captain's word. Perhaps it's like a man in bed with terminal disease, too weak and frail and overwhelmed to do much more than breathe. The news arrives, a cure is found. This dying man can live if he will only take the pill the good physician gives. But suddenly it dawns on me, a subtle, sober thrill. My circumstance was worse than this. Salvation greater still. I couldn't reach out for the rope or choose the saving med. I couldn't do a thing at all, you see, because I was dead. What credit do I have in this? What portion did I give? God looked upon my stone-dead soul and chose that I should live. He didn't find me on a sea or a sick bed nearing death. No, when he came, I was a corpse without a living breath. He quickened every lifeless part and opened up my eyes. He whispered softly in my ear, Awake, O sleeper, rise. He did it all for his own name. And I assure you this, I cannot boast of anything. The glory is all his. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of salvation. We worship you and we magnify you and your saving work on the cross, God. We thank you that our righteousness is a foreign righteousness. It is not our own. It is your righteousness granted to us, imputed to us in Christ Jesus. Father, what a gift that we cannot earn and we don't deserve, but you gave it freely because you are so good. Father, I pray that every child of God in this place would just be overwhelmed today at your goodness. And I pray that you would 
bring those who don't yet know you into a a saving relationship with you in and through Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.